Hi, I'm Sawyer Green. I use he, him pronouns. I am so thrilled to be a part of this project. I am an actor, singer, dancer, cosplayer, and TTRPG streamer. If you want to keep up with me and my projects, you can find me on Twitter at queer underscore elf underscore club. Thank you so much. The Portrait of Dorian Gray. Chapter 8. It was long past noon when he awoke. His valet had crept several times on tiptoe into the room to see if he was stirring, and had wondered what made his young master sleep so late. Finally, his bell sounded, and Victor came softly in with a cup of tea and a pile of letters on a small tray of old Severus china, and drew back the olive satin curtains with their shimmering blue lining that hung in front of the three tall windows. "'Monsieur has slept well this morning,' he said, smiling. "'What o'clock is it, Victor?' asked Dorian Gray, drowsily. Uh, one hour and a quarter, monsieur. How late it was! He sat up, and having sipped some tea, turned over his letters. One of them was from Lord Henry, and had been brought by hand that morning. He hesitated for a moment, and then put it aside. The others he opened listlessly. They contained the usual collection of cards, invitations to dinner, tickets for private views, programs of charity concerts, and the like that are showered on fashionable young men every morning during the season. There was a rather heavy bill for a chaste silver Louis Conte's toilet seat that he had not yet had the courage to send on to his guardians, who were extremely old-fashioned people, and did not realize that we live in an age when unnecessary things are our only necessities, and there were several very courteously worded communications from German street moneylenders offering to advance any sum of money at a moment's notice and at the most reasonable rates of interest. After about ten minutes, he got up and, throwing on an elaborate dressing gown of silk-embroidered cashmere wool, passed into the onyx-paved bathroom. The cool water refreshed him after his long sleep. He seemed to have forgotten all that he had gone through. A dim sense of having taken part in some strange tragedy came to him once or twice, but there was the unreality of a dream about it. As soon as he was dressed, he went into the library and sat down to a light French breakfast that had been laid out for him on a small round table close to the open window. It was an exquisite day. The warm air seemed laden with spices. A bee flew in and buzzed round the blue dragon bowl that, filled with sulfur-yellow roses, stood before him. He felt perfectly happy. Suddenly, his eye fell on the screen that he had placed in front of the portrait, and he startled. "'Too cold for monsieur?' asked his valet, putting an omelette on the table. "'I shut the window?' Dorian shook his head. "'I am not cold,' he murmured. Was it all true? Had the portrait really changed? Or had it been simply his own imagination that had made him see a look of evil where there had been a look of joy? Surely a painted canvas could not alter. The thing was absurd. It would serve as a tale to tell Basil some day.' It would make him smile. And yet, how vivid was his recollection of the whole thing? First in the dim twilight, and then in the bright dawn, he had seen the touch of cruelty round the warped lips. He almost dreaded his valet leaving the room. He knew that when he was alone, he would have to examine the portrait. He was afraid of certainty. When the coffee and cigarettes had been brought and the man turned to go, he felt a wild desire to tell him to remain. As the door was closing behind him, he called him back. The man stood waiting for his orders. Dorian looked at him for a moment. <sighs> I am not at home to anyone, Victor, he said with a sigh. The man bowed and retired. 
Then he rose from the table, lit a cigarette, and flung himself down on a luxuriously cushioned couch that stood facing the screen. The screen was an old one, of gilt Spanish leather, stamped and wrought with a rather florid Louis Couture's pattern. He scanned it curiously, wondering if ever before it had concealed the secret of a man's life. Should he move it aside after all? Why not let it stay there? What was the use of knowing? If the thing was true, it was terrible. If it was not true, why trouble about it? But what if, by some fate or deadlier chance, eyes other than his spied behind and saw the horrible change? What should he do if Basil Hallward came in and asked to look at his own picture? Basil would be sure to do that. No, the thing had to be examined, and at once. Anything would be better than this dreadful state of doubt. He got up and locked both doors. At least he would be alone when he looked upon the mask of his shame. Then he drew the screen aside and saw himself face to face. It was perfectly true. The portrait had altered. As he often remembered afterwards, and always with no small wonder, he found himself at first gazing at the portrait with a feeling of almost scientific interest. That such a change should have taken place was incredible to him. And yet it was a fact. Was there some subtle affinity between the chemical atoms that shaped themselves into form and color on the canvas and the soul that was within him? Could it be that what that soul thought they realized? That what it dreamed they made true? Or was there some other, more terrible reason? He shuddered and felt afraid, and, going back to the couch, lay there, gazing at the picture in sickened horror. One thing, however, he felt that it had done for him— it had made him conscious how unjust, how cruel he had been to Sybil Vane. It was not too late to make reparation for that. She could still be his wife. His unreal and selfish love would yield to some higher influence, would be transformed into some nobler passion, and the portrait that Basil Howard had painted of him would be a guide to him through life, would be to him what holiness is to some, and conscience to others, and the fear of God to us all. There were opiates for remorse, drugs that could lull the moral sense to sleep, but here was a visible symbol of the degradation of sin. Here was an ever-present sign of the ruin men brought upon their souls. Three o'clock struck, and four, and the half-hour rang its double chime. But Dorian Gray did not stir. He was trying to gather up the scarlet threads of life, and to weave them into a pattern to find his way through the sanguine labyrinth of passion through which he was wandering. He did not know what to do or what to think, Finally, he went over to the table and wrote a passionate letter to the girl he had loved, imploring her forgiveness and accusing himself of madness. He covered page after page with wild words of sorrow and wilder words of pain. There is a luxury in self-reproach. When we blame ourselves, we feel that no one else has a right to blame us. It is the confession, not the priest, that gives us absolution. When Dorian had finished the letter, he felt that he had been forgiven. Suddenly, there came a knock to the door, and he heard Lord Henry's voice outside. "'My dear boy, I must see you. Let me in at once. I can't bear you shutting yourself up like this.' He made no answer at first, but remained quite still. The knocking still continued and grew louder. Yes, it was better to let Lord Henry in and to explain to him the new life he was going to lead, to quarrel with him if it became necessary to quarrel, to part if parting was inevitable. He jumped up, drew the screen hastily across the picture, and unlocked the door. "'I am so sorry for it all, Dorian,' said Lord Henry as he entered. "'But you must not think too much about it.' "'Do you mean about Sybil Vane?' 
asked the lad. Yes, of course, answered Lord Henry, sinking into a chair and slowly pulling off his yellow gloves. It is dreadful from one point of view, but it was not your fault. Tell me, did you go behind and see her after the play was over? Yes. I felt sure you had. Did you make a scene with her? I was brutal. Very perfectly brutal. But it's all right now. I'm, I'm not sorry for anything that has happened. It has taught me to know myself better. Ah, Dorian, I'm so glad you take it in that way. I was afraid I would find you plunging remorse and tearing that nice curly hair of yours. I have got through all that, said Dorian, shaking his head and smiling. I am perfectly happy now. I know what conscience is, to begin with. It is not what you told me it was. It is the divinest thing in us. Don't sneer at it, Harry, any more, at least not before me. I want to be good. I can't bear the idea of my soul being hideous. A very charming artistic basis for ethics, Dorian. I congratulate you on it. But how are you going to begin? By marrying Sybil Vane. Marrying Sybil Vane? cried Lord Henry, standing up and looking at him in perplexed amazement. But my dear Dorian! Yes, Harry, I know, I know what you're going to say. Something dreadful about marriage. Don't say it. Don't ever say things of that kind to me again. Two days ago I asked Sybil to marry me. I'm not going to break my word to her. She is to be my wife. Your wife? Dorian, didn't you get my letter? I wrote to you this morning and sent the note down by my own man. Your letter? Oh, yes, I remember. I have not read it yet, Harry. I was afraid there might be something in it that I wouldn't like. You cut life to pieces with your epigrams. You know nothing, then? What do you mean? Lord Henry walked across the room and, sitting down next to Dorian Gray, took both his hands in his own and held them tightly. Dorian, he said. My letter, don't be frightened, was to tell you that Sybil Vane is dead. A cry of pain broke from the lad's lips, and he leaped to his feet, tearing his hands away from Lord Henry's grasp. Dead? Sybil Vane, dead? It's not true. It's a horrible lie. How dare you say it? It is quite true, Dorian said Lord Henry gravely. It is in all the morning papers. I wrote down to you to ask you not to see anyone till I came. There will have to be an inquest, of course, and you must not be mixed up in it. Things like that make a man fashionable in Paris, but in London people are so prejudiced. Here one should never make one's debut with a scandal. One should reserve that to give an interest to one's old age. I suppose they don't know your name at the theatre? If they don't, it's all right. Did anyone see you going round to her room? That is an important point. Dorian did not answer for a few moments. He was dazed with horror. Finally, he stammered in a stifled voice. Harry, did you say an inquest? What did you mean by that? Did Sybil... Oh, Harry, I can't bear it, but be quick. Tell me everything at once. I have no doubt it was not an accident, Dorian, though it must be put in that way to the public. It seems that as she was leaving the theatre with her mother about half-past twelve or so, she said she had forgotten something upstairs. They waited some time for her, but she did not come down again. They ultimately found her lying dead on the floor of her dressing room. She had swallowed something by mistake, some dreadful thing they use at theatres. I don't know what it was, but it had either prussic acid or white lead in it. I should fancy it was prussic acid, as she seems to have died instantaneously. Harry, Harry, it is terrible, cried the lad. Yes, it is very tragic, of course, but you must not get yourself mixed up in it. I see by the standard that she was seventeen. I should have thought she was almost younger than that. She looked such a child and seemed to know so little about acting. Dorian, you mustn't let this thing get on your nerves. You must come and dine with me, and afterward we will look in at the opera. 
It is a paddy night and everybody will be there. You can come by my sister's box. She has got some smart women with her. So I have murdered Sybil Vane, said Dorian Gray to himself. Murdered her as surely as if I'd cut her little throat with a knife. Yet the roses are not less lovely for all that. The birds sing just as happily in my garden, and tonight I am to dine with you and to then go on to the opera and sup somewhere, I suppose, afterwards. How extraordinarily dramatic life is. If I had read all this in a book, Harry, I, I think I would have wept over it. Somehow, now that it has happened actually, and to me, it seems far too wonderful for tears. Here is the first passionate love letter I have ever written in my life. Strange that my first passionate love letter should have been addressed to a dead girl. Can they feel, I wonder, those white, silent people we call the dead? Sybil, can she feel or know or listen? Oh, Harry, how I loved her once. It seems years ago to me now. She was everything to me. Then came that dreadful night. Was it really only last night when she played so badly and my heart almost broke? She explained it all to me. It was terribly pathetic. But I was not moved a bit. I thought her shallow. Suddenly something happened that made me afraid. I can't tell what it was. But it was terrible. I said I would go back to her. I felt I had done wrong, and now she is dead. My God, my God, Harry, what shall I do? You don't know the danger I am in, and there is nothing to keep me straight. She would have done that for me. She had no right to kill herself. It was selfish of her. My dear Dorian, answered Lord Henry, taking a cigarette from his case and producing a golden-laden matchbox. The only way a woman can ever reform a man is by boring him so completely that he loses all possible interest in life. If you had married this girl, you would have been wretched. Of course, you would have treated her kindly. One can always be kind to people about whom one cares nothing. But she would have soon found out that you are absolutely indifferent to her, and when a woman finds that out about her husband, she either becomes dreadfully dowdy or wears very smart bonnets that some other woman's husband has to pay for. I say nothing about the social mistake which would have been abject, which, of course, I would not have allowed, but I assure you that in any case the whole thing would have been an absolute failure. I suppose it would, muttered the lad, walking up and down the room and looking horribly pale. But I thought it was my duty. It is not my fault that this terrible tragedy has prevented my doing what was right. I remember your saying once that there is a fatality about good resolutions, but they are always made too late. Mine certainly were. Good resolutions are useless attempts to interfere with scientific laws. The origin is pure vanity. The result is absolutely nil. They give us, now and then, some of those luxurious, sterile emotions that have a certain charm for the weak. That is all that can be said for them. They are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. Harry, cried Dorian Gray, coming over and sitting down beside him, why is it that I cannot feel this tragedy as much as I want to? I don't think I am heartless, do you? You have done too many foolish things during the last fortnight to entitle yourself that name, Dorian, answered Lord Henry with his sweet, melancholy smile. The lad frowned. I don't like that explanation, Harry, he rejoined. But I am glad you don't think I am heartless. I am nothing of the kind. I, I know I am not. And yet I must admit that this thing that has happened does not affect me as it should. It seems to me to be simply like a wonderful ending to a wonderful play. It is all the terrible beauty of a Greek tragedy, a tragedy in which I took a great part, but by which I wouldn't have not been wounded. It is an interesting question, said Lord Henry, who found an exquisite pleasure in playing the lad's unconscious egotism. An extremely interesting question. I fancy that the true explanation is this. 
It often happens that the real tragedies of life occur in such an inartistic manner that they hurt us by their crude violence, their absolute incoherence, their absurd want of meaning, their entire lack of style. They affect us just as vulgarity affects us. They give us an impression of sheer brute force, and we revolt against that. Sometimes, however, a tragedy that possesses artistic elements of beauty crosses our lives. If these elements of beauty are real, the whole thing simply appeals to our sense of dramatic effect. Suddenly we find that we are no longer the actors, but the spectators of the play. Or rather, we are both. We watch ourselves, and the mere wonder of the spectacle enthralls us. In the present case, what is it that has really happened? Someone has killed herself for love of you. I wish that I had ever had such an experience. It would have made me in love with love for the rest of my life. The people who have adored me, there have not been very many, but there have been some, have always insisted on living on long after I have ceased to care for them or they care for me. They have become stout and tedious, and when I meet them they go in at once for reminiscences. That awful memory of woman. What a fearful thing it is. And what an utter intellectual stagnation it reveals. One should absorb the color of life, but one should never remember its details. Details are always vulgar. I must sow poppies in my garden, sighed Dorian. There is no necessity, rejoined his companion. Life has always poppies in her hands. Of course, now and then things linger. I once wore nothing but violets all through one season as a form of artistic mourning for a romance that would not die. Ultimately, however, it did die. I forget what killed it. I think it was her proposing to sacrifice the whole world for me. That is always a dreadful moment. It fills one with terror of eternity. Well, would you believe it? A week ago at Lady Hampshire's, I found myself seated at dinner next to the lady in question, and she insisted on going over the whole thing again, and digging up the past and raking up the future. I had buried my romance in a bed of asphodel. She dragged it out again and assured me that I had spoiled her life. I am bound to state that she ate an enormous dinner, so I did not feel any anxiety. But what a lack of taste she showed. The one charm of the past is that it is the past. But women never know when the curtain has fallen. They always want a sixth act, and as soon as the interest of the play is entirely over, they propose to continue it. If they were allowed their own way, every comedy would have a tragic ending, and every tragedy would culminate in a farce. They are charmingly artificial, but they have no sense of art. You are more fortunate than I am. I assure you, Dorian, that not one of the women I have known would have done for me what Sybil Vane did for you. Ordinary women always console themselves. Some of them do it by going in for sentimental colours. Never trust a woman who wears mauve, whatever her age may be, or a woman over thirty-five who is fond of pink ribbons. It is always means that they have a history. Others find a great consolation in suddenly discovering the good qualities of their husbands. They flaunt their conjugal felicity in one's face as if it were the most fascinating of sins. Religion consoles some... Its mysteries have all the charm of a flirtation, a woman once told me, and I can quite understand it. Besides, nothing makes one so vain as being told that one is a sinner. Conscience makes egoists of us all. Yes, there is really no end to the consolations that women find in modern life. Indeed, I have not mentioned the most important one. What is that, Harry? said the lad listlessly. Oh, the obvious consolation. Taking someone else's admirer and one loses one's own. In good society, that always whitewashes a woman. But really, Dorian, how different Sybil Vane must have been from all the women one meets. There is something to me quite beautiful about her death. I am glad I am living in a century where such wonders happen. They make one believe in the reality of the things we all play with, such as romance, passion, and love. I was terribly cruel to her. You forget that. I am afraid that women appreciate cruelty, downright cruelty, more than anything else. 
They have wonderfully primitive instincts. We have emancipated them, but they remain slaves looking for their masters all the time. They love being dominated. I'm sure you are splendid. I've never seen you really and absolutely angry, but I can fancy how delightful you looked. And after all, you said something to me the day before yesterday that seemed to me at the time to be merely fanciful, but that I see now is absolutely true, and it holds the key to everything. What was that, Harry? You said to me that Sybil Vane represented to you all the heroines of romance, that she was Desdemona one night and Ophelia the other, that if she died as Juliet, she came to life as Imogen. She will never come to life again now, muttered the lad, burying his face in his hands. No, she will never come to life. She has played her last part. But you must think of that lonely death in the tawdry dressing room simply as a strange lurid fragment from some Jacobean tragedy, as a wonderful scene from Webster or Ford or Cyril Tourneur. The girl never really lived, and so she has never really died. To you, at least, she was always a dream, a phantom that flitted through Shakespeare's plays and left them lovelier for its presence, a reed through which Shakespeare's music sounded richer and more full of joy. The moment she touched actual life, she marred it, and it marred her, and so she passed away. Mourn for Ophelia, if you like. Put ashes on your head because Cordelia was strangled. Cry out against heaven because the daughter of Barbancio died. But don't waste your tears over Sybil Vane. She was less real than they are. There was silence. The evening darkened in the room. Noiselessly and with silver feet, the shadows crept in from the garden. The colors faded wearily out of things. After some time, Dorian Gray looked up. You have explained me to myself, Harry, he murmured with something of a sigh of relief. I felt all that you have said, but somehow I was afraid of it, and I could not express it to myself. How well you know me. But we will not talk again of what has happened. It has been a marvellous experience, that is all. I wonder if life has still in store for me anything as marvellous. Life has everything in store for you, Dorian. There is nothing that you, with your extraordinary good looks, will not be able to do. But suppose, Harry, I became haggard and old and wrinkled. What then? Ah, then, said Lord Henry, rising to go. Then, my dear Dorian, you would have to fight for your victories. As it is, they are brought to you. No, you must keep your good looks. We live in an age that reads too much to be wise and that thinks too much to be beautiful. We cannot spare you. And now you had better dress and drive down to the club. We are rather late as it is. I think I shall join you at the opera, Harry. I feel too tired to eat anything. What is the number of your sister's box? Twenty-seven, I believe. It is on the grand tier. You will see a name on the door. But I am sorry you won't come and dine. I don't feel up to it said Dorian, listlessly. But I am awfully obliged to you for all that you have said to me. You are certainly my best friend. No one has ever understood me as you have. We are only at the beginning of our friendship, Dorian, answered Lord Henry, shaking him by the hand. Goodbye. I shall see you before nine-thirty, I hope. Remember, Patty is singing. As he closed the door behind him, Dorian Gray touched the bell, and in a few minutes Victor appeared with the lamps and drew the blinds down. He waited impatiently for him to go, the man seemed to take an interminable time over everything. As soon as he had left, he rushed to the screen and drew it back. No, there was no further change in the picture. It had received the news of Sybil Vane's death before he had known of it himself. It was conscious of the events of life as they occurred. The vicious cruelty that marred the fine lines of the mouth had, no doubt, appeared at the very moment that the girl had drunk the poison, whatever it was. Or was it indifferent to the results? Did it merely take cognizance of what passed within the soul? He wondered, and hoped, that some day he would see the change take place before his very eyes, 
shuddering as he hoped it. Poor Sybil. What a romance it had all been. She had often mimicked death on the stage. Then death himself had touched her and taken her with him. How had she played that dreadful last scene? Had she cursed him as she died? No. She had died for love of him, and love would always be a sacrament to him now. She had atoned for everything by the sacrifice she had made of her life. He would not think any more of what she had made him go through on that horrible night at the theater. When he thought of her, it would be as a wonderful, tragic figure sent onto the world's stage to show the supreme reality of love. A wonderful, tragic figure? Tears came to his eyes as he remembered her childlike look and winsome, fanciful ways and shy, tremulous grace. He brushed them away hastily and looked again at the picture. He felt that the time had really come for making his choice. Or had his choice already been made? Yes, life had decided that for him. Life and his own infinite curiosity about life. Eternal youth, infinite passion, pleasures, subtle and secret, wild joys and wilder sins. He was to have all these things. The portrait was to bear the burden of his shame. That was all. A feeling of pain crept over him as he thought of the desecration that was in store for the fair face on the canvas. Once, in boyish mockery of Narcissus, he had kissed, or feigned to kiss, those painted lips that now smiled so cruelly at him. Morning after morning he had sat before the portrait, wondering at its beauty, almost enamored of it, as it seemed to him at times. Was it to alter now with every mood to which he yielded? Was it to become a monstrous and loathsome thing, to be hidden away in a locked room, to be shut out from the sunlight that had so often touched to brighter gold the waving wonder of its hair? The pity of it! The pity of it! For a moment he thought of praying that the horrible sympathy that existed between him and the picture might cease. It had changed in answer to a prayer. Perhaps in answer to a prayer it might remain unchanged. And yet, who that knew anything about life would surrender the chance of remaining always young, however fantastic that chance might be, or with what faithful consequences it might be fraught? Besides, was it really under his control? Had it indeed been prayer that had produced the substitution? Might there not be some curious scientific reason for it all? If thought could exercise its influence upon a living organism, might not thought exercise an influence upon dead and inorganic things? Nay, without thought or conscious desire, might not things external to ourselves vibrate in unison with our moods and passions, Adam calling Adam in secret love of strange affinity? But the reason was of no importance. He would never again tempt by a prayer any terrible power. If the picture was to alter, it was to alter. That was all. Why inquire too closely into it? For there would be a real pleasure in watching it. He would be able to follow his mind into its secret places. This portrait would be to him the most magical of mirrors. As it had revealed to him his own body, so it revealed to him his own soul. And when winter came upon it, he would still be standing where spring trembles on the verge of summer. When the blood crept from its face and left behind a pallid mask of chalk with leaden eyes, he would keep the glamour of boyhood. Not one blossom of his loveliness would ever fade. Not one pulse of his life would ever weaken. Like the gods of the Greeks, he would be strong and fleet and joyous. What did it matter what happened to the colored image on the canvas? He would be safe. That was everything. He drew the screen back into its former place in front of the picture, smiling as he did so and passed into his bedroom, where his valet was already waiting for him. An hour later, he was at the opera, and Lord Henry was leaning over his chair. Chapter 9 
As he was sitting at breakfast next morning, Basil Howard was shown into the room. "'I am so glad I have found you, Dorian,' he said gravely. "'I called last night, and they told me you were at the opera. "'Of course, I knew that was impossible. "'But I wish you had left word where you had really gone to. "'I passed a dreadful evening, half afraid that one tragedy might be followed by another. "'I think you might have telegraphed me when you heard of it first. "'I read of it quite by chance in a late edition of The Globe that I picked up at the club. "'I came here at once and was miserable at not finding you. "'I can't tell you how heartbroken I am about the whole thing.' I know what you must suffer, but where were you? Did you go down and see the girl's mother? For a moment I thought of following you there. They gave the address in the paper. Somewhere in the Euston Road, isn't it? But I was afraid of intruding upon a sorrow that I could not lighten. Poor woman. What a state she must be in. And her only child, too. What did she say about it all? My dear Basil, how do I know? murmured Dorian Gray, sipping some pale yellow wine from a delicate gold-beaded bubble of Venetian glass and looking dreadfully bored. I was at the opera. You should have come on there. I met Lady Gwendolyn, Harry's sister, for the first time. We were in her box. She's perfectly charming, and Patty sang divinely. Don't talk about horrid subjects. If one doesn't talk about a thing, it has never happened. It is simply expression, as Harry says, that gives reality to a thing. I may mention that she was not the woman's only child. There is a son, a charming fellow, I believe. But he is not on the stage. He is a sailor or something. And now tell me about yourself and what you're painting. You went to the opera, said Howard, speaking very slowly and with a strained touch of pain in his voice. You went to the opera while Sybil Vane was lying dead in some sordid lodging. You can talk to me of other women being charming and Patty singing divinely before the girl you loved has even the quiet of a grave to sleep in? Why, man, there are horrors in store for that little white body of hers. Stop, Basil, I won't hear it, cried Dorian, leaping to his feet. You must not tell me about things. What is done is done. What is past is past. You call yesterday the past. What has the actual lapse of time got to do with it? It is only shallow people who require years to get rid of an emotion. A man who is master of himself can end a sorrow as easily as he can invent a pleasure. I don't want to be at the mercy of my emotions. I want to use them, to enjoy them, and to dominate them. Dorian, this is horrible. Something has changed you completely. You look exactly the same as the wonderful boy who day after day used to come down to my studio to sit for his picture. But you were simple, natural, and affectionate then. You were the most unspoiled creature in the whole world. Now, I don't know what has come over you. You talk as if you have no heart, no pity in you. It is all Harry's influence, I see that. The lad flushed up, and going to the window, looked out for a few moments in the green, flickering, sun-lashed garden. I owe a great deal to Harry Basil, he said at last. More than I owe to you. He only taught me to be vain. Well, I am punished for that, Dorian. Or shall be some day. I don't know what you mean, Basil, he exclaimed, turning around. I don't know what you want. What do you want? I want the Dorian Gray I used to paint, said the artist sadly. Basil, said the lad going over to him and putting his hand on his shoulder, you have come too late. Yesterday, when I heard that Sybil Vane killed herself, killed herself. Good heavens, is there no doubt about that? cried Howard, looking up at him with an expression of horror. My dear Basil, "'Surely you don't think it was a vulgar accident. "'Of course she killed herself.' "'The elder man buried his face in his hands. "'How fearful,' he muttered, and a shudder ran through him. "'No,' said Dorian Gray. "'There 
There's nothing fearful about it. It is one of the great romantic tragedies of the age. As a rule, people who act lead the most commonplace lives. They are good husbands or faithful wives or something tedious. You know what I mean. Middle-class virtue and all that kind of thing. How different Sybil was. She lived her finest tragedy. She was always a heroine. The last night she played, the night you saw her, she acted badly because she had known the reality of love. When she knew its unreality, she died as Juliet might have died. She passed again into the sphere of art. There is something of the martyr about her. Her death is all the pathetic uselessness of martyrdom, all its wasted beauty. But, as I was saying, you must not think I have not suffered. If you had come in yesterday at a particular moment, about half-past five perhaps, or a quarter to six, you would have found me in tears. Even Harry, who was here, who brought me the news, in fact, had no idea what I was going through. I suffered immensely. Then it passed away. I cannot repeat an emotion. No one can except sentimentalists. And you are awfully unjust, Basil. You come down here to console me. That is charming of you. You find me consoled and you are furious. How like a sympathetic person. You remind me of a story Harry told me about a certain philanthropist who spent twenty years of his life in trying to get some grievance redressed or some unjust law altered. I forget exactly what it was. Finally, he succeeded and nothing could exceed his disappointment. He had absolutely nothing to do, almost died of ennui, and became a confirmed misanthrope. And besides, my dear old Basil, if you really want to console me, teach me rather to forget what has happened or to see it from the proper artistic point of view. Was it not Gautier used to write about La Consolation des Arts? I remember picking up a little vellum-covered book in your studio one day and chancing on that delightful phrase. Well, I am not like that young man you told me of when we were down at Marlowe together, the young man who used to say that yellow satin could console one for all the miseries of life. I love beautiful things that one can touch and handle. Old brocades, green bronzes, lacquer work, carved ivories, exquisite surroundings, luxury, pomp, there is much to be got from all these. But the artistic temperament that they create, or at any rate reveal, is still more to me. To become the spectator of one's own life, as Harry says, is to escape the suffering of life. I know you are surprised at my talking to you like this. You have not realised how I have developed. I was a schoolboy when you knew me. I am a man now. I have new passions, new thoughts, new ideas. I am different, but you must not like me less. I am changed, but you must always be my friend. Of course I am very fond of Harry, but I know that you are better than he is. You are not stronger. You are too much afraid of life. But you are better. And how happy we used to be together. Don't leave me, Basil. And don't quarrel with me. I am what I am. There's nothing more to be said. The painter felt strangely moved. The lad was infinitely dear to him, and his personality had been the great turning point in his art. He could not bear the idea of reproaching him any more. After all, his indifference was probably merely a mood that would pass away. There was so much in him that was good. So much in him that was noble. Well, Dorian, he said at length with a sad smile, I won't speak to you again about this horrible thing after today. I trust your name won't be mentioned in connection with it. The inquest is to take place this afternoon. Have they summoned you? Dorian shook his head and a look of annoyance passed over his face at the mention of the word inquest. There was something so crude and vulgar about everything of the kind. They don't know my name, he answered. But surely she did. Only my Christian name, and that I am quite sure she never mentioned to anyone. She told me once that they were all rather curious to learn who I was, and that she invariably told them my name was Prince Charming. It was pretty of her. You must do me a drawing of Sybil, Basil. 
I should like to have something more of her than the memory of a few kisses and some broken pathetic words. I will try and do something, Dorian, if it would please you. But you must come and sit to me yourself again. I can't get on without you. I can never sit to you again, Basil. It's impossible, he exclaimed, starting back. The painter stared at him. My dear boy, what nonsense, he cried. Do you mean to say you don't like what I did of you? Where is it? Why have you pulled the screen in front of it? Let me look at it. It is the best thing I've ever done. Do take the screen away, Dorian. It is simply disgraceful, your servant hiding my work like that. I felt the room look different as I came in. My servant has got nothing to do with it, Basil. You don't imagine I let him arrange my room for me. He settles my flowers for me sometimes, that is all. No, I did it myself. The light was too strong in the portrait. Too strong? Surely not, my dear fellow. It is an admirable place for it. Let me see it. And Howard walked towards the corner of the room. A cry of terror broke from Dorian Gray's lips, and he rushed between the painter and the screen. Basil, he said, looking very pale, you must not look at it. I don't wish you to. Not looking at my own work. You are not serious. Why shouldn't I look at it? exclaimed Howard, laughing. If you try to look at it, Basil, on my word of honour, I will never speak to you again as long as I live. I am quite serious. I don't offer any explanation. You are not to ask for any. But remember, if you touch the screen, everything is over between us. Howard was thunderstruck. He looked at Dorian Gray in absolute amazement. He had never seen him like this before. The lad was actually pallid with rage. His hands were clenched and the pupils of his eyes were like discs of blue fire. He was trembling all over. Dorian, don't speak. But what is the matter? Of course I won't look at it if you don't want me to, he said, rather coldly, turning on his heel and going over towards the window. But really, it seems rather absurd that I shouldn't see my own work, especially as I am going to exhibit it in Paris in the autumn. I shall probably have to give it another coat of varnish before that, so I must see it some day. Why not today? To exhibit it? You want to exhibit it? exclaimed Dorian Gray, a strange sense of terror creeping over him. Was the world going to be shown his secret? Were people to gape at the mystery of his life? That was impossible. Something, he did not know what, had to be done at once. Yes, I don't suppose you'll object to that. George Pettit is going to collect all my best pictures for a special exhibition in the Rue de Cés, which will open the first week in October. The portrait will only be away a month. I should think you could easily spare it for that time. In fact, you are sure to be out of town. And you keep it always behind a screen. You can't care much about it. Dorian Gray passed his hand over his forehead. There were beads of perspiration there. He felt that he was on the brink of a horrible danger. You told me a month ago that you would never exhibit it, he cried. Why have you changed your mind? You people who go in for being consistent have just as many moods as others have. The only difference is that your moods are rather meaningless. You can't have forgotten that you assured me most solemnly that nothing in the world would induce you to send it to any exhibition. You told Harry the exact same thing. He stopped suddenly, and a gleam of light came into his eyes. He remembered that Lord Henry had said to him once, half seriously and half in jest, "'If you want to have a strange quarter of an hour, get Basil to tell you why he won't exhibit your picture. He told me why he wouldn't, and it was a revelation to me.' "'Yes, perhaps Basil, too, had his secret. He would ask him and try. "'Basil,' he said, coming over quite close and looking him straight in the face, "'we have each of us a secret. Let me know yours, and I shall tell you mine. "'What was your reason for refusing to exhibit my picture?' Dorian, if I told you, you might like me less than you do, and you would certainly laugh at me. I cannot bear your doing either of those things. If you wish me never to look at your picture again, I am content. I have always you to look at. If you wish the best work I have ever done to be hidden from the world, I am satisfied. Your friendship is dearer to me than any fame or reputation. 
No, Basil, you must tell me, insisted Dorian Gray. I think I have a right to know. His feeling of terror had passed away, and curiosity had taken its place. He was determined to find out Basil Halward's mystery. Let us sit down, Dorian, said the painter, looking troubled. Let us sit down and just answer me one question. Have you noticed in the picture something curious? Something that probably at first did not strike you, but that revealed itself to you suddenly? Basil! cried the lad, clutching the arms of his chair with trembling hands and gazing at him with wild, startled eyes. I see you did. Don't speak. Wait till you hear what I have to say. Dorian, from the moment I met you, your personality had the most extraordinary influence over me. I was dominated soul, brain, and power by you. You became to me the visible incarnation of that unseen ideal whose memory haunts us artists like an exquisite dream. I worshipped you. I grew jealous of everyone to whom you spoke. I wanted to have you all to myself. I was only happy when I was with you. When you were away from me, you were still present in my art. Of course, I never let you know anything about this. It would have been impossible. You would not have understood it. I hardly understood it myself. I only knew that I had seen perfection face to face and that the world had become wonderful to my eyes. Too wonderful, perhaps. For in such mad worships there is peril. The peril of losing them, no less than the peril of keeping them. Weeks and weeks went on and I grew more and more absorbed in you. Then came a new development. I had drawn you as Paris in dainty armour and as Adonis with huntsman's cloak and polished boar spear, crowned with heavy lotus blossoms, you had sat on the prow of Adrian's barge, gazing across the green turbid Nile. You had leant over the still pool of some Greek woodland and seen in the waters silent silver the marvel of your own face, and it had all been what art should be, unconscious, ideal, and remote. One day, a fatal day, I sometimes think, I determined to paint a wonderful portrait of you as you actually are, not in the costume of dead ages, but in your own dress and in your own time. Whether it was the realism of this method, or the mere wonder of your own personality, thus directly presented to me without mist or veil, I cannot tell. But I know that as I worked at it, every flake and film of colour seemed to me to reveal my secret. I grew afraid that others would know of my idolatry. I felt, Dorian, that I had told too much, I had put too much of myself into it. Then it was that I resolved never to allow the picture to be exhibited. You were a little annoyed, but then you did not realise all that it meant to me. Harry, to whom I talked about it, laughed at me. But I did not mind that. When the picture was finished and I sat alone with it, I felt that I was right. Well, after a few days, the thing left my studio, and as soon as I had got rid of the intolerable fascination of its presence, it seemed to me that I had been foolish in imagining that I had seen anything in it more than that you were extremely good-looking and that I could paint. Even now, I cannot help feeling that it is a mistake to think that the passion one feels in creation is ever really shown in the work one creates, and art is always more abstract than we fancy. Form and colour tell us of form and colour. That is all. It often seems to me that art conceals the artist far more completely than it ever reveals him. And so, when I got this off from Paris, I determined to make your portrait the principal thing in my exhibition. It never occurred to me that you would refuse. I see now that you are right. The picture cannot be shown. You must not be angry with me, Dorian, for what I have told you. As I said to Harry once, you are made to be worshipped. 
Dorian Gray drew a long breath. The color came back to his cheeks, and a smile played about his lips. The peril was over. He was safe for the time. Yet he could not help feeling infinite pity for the painter who had just made his strange confession to him, and wondered if he himself would ever be so dominated by the personality of a friend. Lord Henry had the charm of being very dangerous, but that was all. He was too clever and too cynical to be really fond of. Would there ever be someone who would fill him with a strange idolatry? Was that one of the things that life had in store? "'It is extraordinary to me, Dorian,' said Howard, "'that you should have seen this in this portrait. "'Did you really see it?' "'I saw something in it,' he answered, "'something that seemed to me very curious. "'Well, you don't mind my looking at the thing now?' "'Dorian shook his head. "'You must not ask me that, Basil. "'I could not possibly let you stand in front of that picture.' You will some day, surely. Never. Well, perhaps you are right. And now, goodbye, Dorian. You have been the one person in my life who has really influenced my art. Whatever I have done that is good, I owe to you. Ah, you don't know what it cost me to tell you all that I've told you. My dear Basil, said Dorian, what have you told me? Simply that you felt that you admired me too much. That is not even a compliment. It was not intended as a compliment. It was a confession. Now that I have made it, something seems to have gone out of me. Perhaps one should never put one's worship into words. It was a very disappointing confession. Why? What did you expect, Dorian? You didn't see anything else in the picture, did you? There was nothing else to see. No, there was nothing else to see. Why do you ask? But you mustn't talk about worship. It's foolish. You and I are friends, Basil, and we must always remain so. You've got Harry, said the painter, sadly. Oh, Harry, cried the lad with a ripple of laughter. Harry spends his days in saying what is incredible and his evenings in doing what is impossible. Just the sort of life I would like to lead. But I still don't think I would go to Harry if I were in trouble. I would sooner go to you, Basil. You will sit to me again? Impossible! You spoil my life as an artist by refusing, Dorian. No man came across two ideal things. Few come across one. I can't explain it to you, Basil, but I must never sit to you again. There is something fatal about a portrait. It has a life of its own. I will come and have tea with you. That will be just as pleasant. Pleasanter for you, I am afraid, murmured Howard regretfully. And now goodbye. I am sorry you won't let me look at the picture once again, but that can't be helped. I quite understand what you feel about it. As he left the room, Dorian Gray smiled to himself. Poor Basil! How little he knew of the true reason, and how strange it was that, instead of having been forced to reveal his own secret, he had succeeded, almost by chance, in wresting a secret from his friend. How much that strange confession explained to him. The painter's absurd fits of jealousy, his wild devotion, his extravagant panegyrics, his curious reticences. He understood them all now and he felt sorry. There seemed to him to be something tragic in a friendship so colored by romance. He sighed and touched the bell. The portrait must be hidden away at all costs. He could not run such a risk of discovery again. It had been mad of him to have allowed the thing to remain, even for an hour, in a room to which any of his friends had access.' 